Welcome to The Deal with Animals. I'm Marika Bell, anthrozoologist, CPDT certified dog trainer, and an animal myself. This is a podcast about the connection and interaction between humans and other animals. I love this question. What's the deal with animals? <laughs> what do I think is the deal with animals? I think the deal with animals, for one, I think is off. they're awesome. So what do you think is the deal with animals? Have you ever had an eagle or other large raptor look at you? It's unnerving. Like, whatever they see is definitely not up to their standards. This is part four of the Emerging Voices for Animals in Tourism Conference miniseries. And in this episode, I'm talking to Bobby Chu Bigby, who describes herself as an enthusiast of the diversity of human cultures, languages, and traditional relationships with the living environment. Bobby was born and raised in Oklahoma and a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, daughter of Cantonese, Cherokee, and Euro-American heritages. Bobby's research focuses on comparative models of indigenous-led tourism and cultural resurgence across Australia and the United States. I'm talking with Bobby today about her experience learning about how tribal-led eagle aviary tours are helping to restore relationships of respect with eagle kin. And if you want to hear more about Bobby's work, check out the Emerging Voices for Animals in Tourism Conference 2023 and sign up for the Deal with Animals newsletter at thedealwithanimals.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Marika Bell, and this is The Deal with Animals. Would you please introduce yourself and share your preferred pronouns? Hi, my name is Bobby Chu Bigby. Preferred pronouns are she, her, and I come from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm a member of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, and um, Oklahoma is where I'm still currently based. I have recently just submitted a PhD for examination through a university in Australia, and that PhD has looked at indigenous-led tourism and the ways that tourism can support indigenous connections to culture, to community, to country, meaning land, waters, and certainly non-human animals that for so many indigenous people are viewed as relatives, as kin. Can you talk a little bit about the topic that you're going to be talking about at the conference? Yeah, so... Um, during these past couple years of COVID, as I've been working on my PhD and coming back to Oklahoma, I had a chance to really connect with all different facets of Indigenous and tribal-led tourism. And so I think, you know, a lot of times people think, oh, you know, tribal tourism, that's you're dealing mostly with cultural tourism or you're going out on maybe environmental walks. But the interest that I had was looking at this growth of tours that have been happening with tribal-led eagle aviaries in Oklahoma. So in the state of Oklahoma, we're home to 39 different federally recognized tribes. Most of our tribes, including my own, the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma, this is not our homelands. We were forcibly removed here throughout the 1800s, um, but these are our adopted homelands. And so of the 39 different tribes here in Oklahoma, three of the tribes have their own eagle aviaries 
that basically have aimed, they have permits under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to be able to care for and steward eagles that have been injured and are non-releasable. Um, and the primary goals of these aviaries are first and foremost, the well-being of the eagles. But what I've looked at with my ongoing conversations with the folks who are running these aviaries and through the, the chapter and the presentation I'll be doing at the conference has focused on beyond the you know caretaking and stewardship of these eagles, when you allow visitors to come, what sorts of experiences are these aviaries kind of opening up in terms of allowing tribal members and non-tribal members to be able to connect with eagles and understand kind of the deeper cultural and spiritual significance of these animals that are viewed as kin. So what are your thoughts on this work? I assume you've visited some of these locations and what was your experience? Yeah, so I've had a chance to visit two of the eagle aviaries. The the first one and the one that will be a focus in the presentation and in this chapter that I'd written is with the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. And so Citizen Potawatomi, their homelands are originally the Great Lakes region, but you know, have been in Oklahoma again since the mid-1800s. They're outside of Oklahoma City. Um but a fairly large tribe of 30,000 people. And their aviary was open in 2012. And since then, they have stewarded 14 different eagles. I've had a chance to, you know, be an ongoing conversation with their aviary managers who have really devoted their lives in the last now more than 10 years um, to, you know, opening up this aviary and looking after the eagles. But like I said, you know, the the deeper thing that our conversations have focused on is really reestablishing these relationships of respect, of stewardship, and the cultural knowledge for Potawatomi tribal members who come to visit. So one of the main things that the, the citizen Potawatomi aviary, you know, often talks about is that Eagles have traditionally for Potawatomi people, as well as for many of the other tribes in Oklahoma, always been viewed as relatives, as kin, not just as animals of respect, but literally as kin and as having a very sacred role as the birds that are, because they fly so high, they are the only birds that have seen the face of the creator. And they are the birds that are capable of taking the prayers of humans up to up to the creator. And so that underlying cultural belief is so significant for Potawatomi people to be able to reconnect with. But it also then informs that primary purpose of stewardship, because as the aviary managers have said, because, you know, these eagle relatives have been our prayer warriors, we must return the favor. And so for those eagles that have been injured and are non-releasable, would otherwise die in the wild and not be taken care of, we must return the favor. And, you know, having a tribal aviary is one way of doing this. So who can visit these tribal aviaries? Is this just for members of the tribes or can anyone go and have this? And what is the experience like? What's actually involved? 
So the aviaries, and I, I do just want to clarify that, you know, I am not affiliated with the aviaries. I am not employed by them. I am just an independent researcher and I'm a, a member of, a member of the Cherokee Nation. But the three different aviaries, so you have the Citizen Potawatomi Nation aviary in central Oklahoma. You have the Iowa Nation aviary, which is a bit larger. They have many more birds and not just eagles. Also in central Oklahoma and then down in southwestern Oklahoma, the Comanches have their own aviary as well. These, I'm sorry, can you repeat again what, what you had asked with well, that? First of all, who who can who, can anybody go and, and go to the aviaries and what kind of experience are, are you actually having there? Yeah, so I can speak more specifically to the Citizen Potawatomi Aviary just because that's the, the community that I've worked with most closely. But their aviary is open to the public, but visits and tours definitely have to be scheduled in advance. You know, the aviary has really prioritized, first and foremost, trying to reestablish those connections and visits first with, with tribal members. So when the aviary for Citizen Potawatomi Nation was first opened in 2012, it had coincided with the annual tribal gathering of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. And so that was a very significant kind of opening um, day for them was because it was able specifically to be tailored for Potawatomi families that were coming back for the, the big celebration. So it's certainly the those visits and relationships are prioritized with tribal members, but the aviaries are opened are open to non-tribal members as well. The aviary regularly has school groups that come to visit, student groups, just other interested people. But certainly, you have to you have to arrange ahead of time and be in communication because this is you know a very protected space in which the the well being and welfare of the eagles are considered first. Also, when you make arrangements to be able to go and visit the aviary managers, you know, they want to take time to be able to sit with you and to share stories and everything. And so groups would be small. Certainly over the past, you know, two and a half, three years of COVID, things have been crazy. And for all of the eagle aviaries here in Oklahoma, they went through large periods of time where the aviaries were just were not open. They did virtual tours where they did a lot of awesome virtual presentations on YouTube that I would encourage listeners to go and check out to be able to share images of the eagles and, you know, real-time video, but then also a lot of the cultural stories and updates. So, you know, as we're all kind of emerging from COVID and and also from recent threats of avian flu that have impacted some of the eagle populations as well, I think each of the aviaries is kind of charting their pathway forward in this post-COVID era. But yes, at the end of the day, the aviaries are open to tribal and non-tribal members. One thing that I'll note, though, that um, will also be something that I address in this presentation is just for people to become more aware that because Native American tribes have long had these very important cultural and spiritual relationships with eagles and birds of prey, these relationships are recognized by the U.S. government through certain laws. And some of them have included like the Indian religious use permits, which do allow members, tribal members of federally recognized tribes to possess um things like molten eagle feathers 
for use in prayer and spirituality. And these aviaries play a really important role in that, in that they're able to collect the molten feathers and disperse those feathers to tribal members in a legal way and in a way that's in line with cultural protocol, spiritual protocol, but also U.S. law. So that's one aspect of this also where the aviaries have this role of being able to distribute things like eagle feathers, where that does not include non-tribal members then because non-tribal members are not covered under U.S. law for Indian religious use permit. A lot of people probably don't know that it's illegal to have wild bird feathers. And and a, perhaps you can tell me whether I'm right or not. Eagles, and particularly bald eagles, but maybe other endangered or, or threatened species as well, you definitely can't have. Is that true for all wild birds or is it really just the ones that are considered endangered or threatened? Do you know? Now, I can't speak to that. Certainly, I think the aviaries would be able to to better speak to that, but you're exactly right that it is important. And, and this is just another, I think, message and, and knowledge that's that's shared by these aviaries is about that, yeah, for, for people who are not members of federally recognized tribes, it is illegal to possess feathers or other parts of the eagle. But, you know, this is this is where it really reflects that these are not just simply animal tours. These really are deeper tours in talking about Native American history, Native American culture, and very distinct um, relationships and histories that are are codified in law and in treaty, but then also through tours and through our relationships that are being rebuilt with eagles. And what's the What's the habitat like that these eagles are kept in and, and where do you see them? Where do you view them? Yeah. So at the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, they have a really beautiful aviary that, again, was open in 2012 and it was designed <clears throat> as a half circle. And the, the aviary managers talk about this on, you know, their virtual tours, but also on the in-person tours about just the layers of symbolism and importance of how the aviary was designed. So first and foremost, for, you know, prioritizing, you know, eagle welfare to make sure that the eagles that are resident there that cannot be released are comfortable and healthy and safe and happy. But this semicircle design, as they talk about it, is represents in many ways the coming together that you would see in the powwow circles. So the intertribal powwows that are very important for the Potawatomi people when the families reunite and get together for song. And the door of the, the main door of the aviary where visitors would come in to be able to view some of the eagles also opens to the east, which is very important for Potawatomi people to signify the start of new beginnings. There's also two benches inside of the, um, the, the half circle aviary where people and particularly tribal members, you know, if they have received a particular eagle, molten eagle feather for use in prayer, they're able to sit on these benches. And, you know, many tribal members come to be able to pray with that particular eagle that has given them their feather. Um, so, you know, the, what what I want to point out in the presentation and in this chapter that I've written is that it's not just through the the stories 
and the interactions in the tour itself, but just also in the very design of this tribal aviary where you see a lot of this resurgence of cultural values and cultural ideas for the Potawatomi people. Yeah, that sounds really important. A lot of that has been hard to to get back. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And for, for all of our tribes here in Oklahoma, it's just we're all on different journeys of, of cultural revitalization and reconnection. And so it takes many forms. And it's it's not just with language. It's not just with foods, but but absolutely also with, with animals as well. I've also noticed up here in the Pacific Northwest, attending powwows, that sometimes bald eagles have been brought to the to the festival grounds and are part of the ceremonies. Are these eagles also used in that sort of way? I mean, I have to say, I was really surprised. What are your thoughts on that in terms of what would you tell people? What would you want them to know about that sort of um, gen? Uh, I know that with Citizen Potawatomi Aviary, they, from what I understand, they do not, you know, take the, the eagles out for show. They also do have a buzzard and a hawk that have been stewarded and that are non-releasable that, you know, if they were to go out and do mobile presentations or, you know, talks, that those probably would be the birds that are kind of, that are taken out for short periods of time. I mean, I think it's, it, yeah, the care has to always be taken in this. Um, But I, I do think that the, you know, the, the managers of the tribal aviaries that I've been working with and talking with are very cognizant of, you know, the lines that that can't be crossed in this while still wanting to make sure that animals are brought back as part of uh, cultural activities and that they do again play, you know, central roles in, yeah, cultural ways of being for, for Indigenous peoples. You mentioned earlier the avian flu issue. Has that been a significant issue for these aviaries? Is that something they're taking precautions against? And what does that look like? For both of the visits that I did with Citizen Potawatomi and Iowa Nation aviaries, both of them were very, very vigilant in taking precautions about this. They had, you know, on top of COVID, then with the avian flu, they had further limited tours and were not doing groups. So when I had gone I'd gone as an individual to visit, and I think that they were preferring keeping it down to a size of one or two people. When I did visit, and this was last year, and I believe is still the case, but yeah, for anybody going into the aviary, you would have to, you know, make sure that you'd stepped across kind of a mat that it had disinfectant chemicals Mm -hmm. and, you know, that appropriate space and distance between yourself and, and the the inside of the aviary was was managed. So yeah, these the concerns of both COVID and the avian flu have definitely been issues for the aviaries. But you know, from from my perspective and what I observed as a visitor and someone in dialogue with them, they've been very vigilant and, you know, trying to to make sure that that is as well managed as possible. Mm. So do you know how these aviaries were started? What what was the impetus initially to to get going with this sort of reconnection? Yeah, so the from the research that I had done, the very first tribal aviary to open up in the United States, and there are only between eight to nine of them, actually. So they're not very many, even though we have over 
570 something federally recognized tribes throughout the U.S. There are only about eight to nine. So it's it's very, very few. It started with the Zuni people in the tribe in New Mexico in the late 90s. And it's basically to serve as, as a sanctuary for injured eagles. But I think from my understanding and the conversations that I've had with a lot of the tribal members here in Oklahoma, in many ways, you know, many of the tribal governments have been interested in doing something like this, but it's often taken just certain individuals within a tribe to step forward and say, this is really something that we want to embrace, that we want to invest in, that we want to, you know, partner with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, because there are so many different layers of, of compliance and permits that have to, that, that go into this. But so for the three tribes in Oklahoma, the Comanches, Citizen Potawatomi, and Iowa Nations, you know, really through my conversations, I've seen that it's really been through the leadership of one or two or a handful of, of really strong individuals, tribal members who have felt very strong personal and cultural connections with with these eagles as birds, as birds of prayer, like I said, as prayer warriors that humans and, and specifically our tribal members feel a need to be able to reciprocate in terms of that level of stewardship and care because eagles have long been relatives that are associated with with prayer. Yeah. What are other ways that the reciprocity is is part of that relationship with the eagles in maybe the connection of the eagles that are still in the wild? Well, I do know that Citizen Potawatomi tribe, they, you know, maintain very strong relationships with other organizations in Oklahoma that are not tribally run, but that are also dealing with, you know, life management and care, partnering with wildlife cares in Oklahoma that helps to rescue and rehabilitate, you know, wildlife that have been found that have been hit by cars, poisoned by led. So I'd say that certainly partnerships with tribal and non-tribal organizations that are doing all sorts of work for animals. I think that that stewardship is definitely through a lot of the educational initiatives that are not just focused on the, the cultural elements of working with the eagles, but, you know, with just basic safety and health about raising awareness that in this country, we had seen such a huge decline in eagle populations because of contamination of food sources, a lot of ingestion by the eagles of, you know, lead from bullets that were not properly disposed of, illegal killings and habitat destruction. And so really raising awareness and education about all of these issues that are that are facing eagles, birds, but you know, really all wildlife as kind of human expansion is just pervading every corner. Now, how is it to work with the Fish and Wildlife Department? Because it's interesting to me that having a permit on native land is necessary. You still have to go through the United States government. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. That is correct. And I will say that, you know, an important thing to keep in mind is that for federally recognized tribes, they have direct relationships with the federal government. So, and this is where in a place like Oklahoma, it gets very complex. Now to mm -hmm. your original question of what it's like working with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, I can't speak to that because, you know, I've not played a role as, as an aviary manager. 
But I can just say that, you know, in a state like Oklahoma, it's extremely complex because we have many, you have the layers of local jurisdiction. You have tribal nations who that are considered domestic dependent nations that have direct relationships with the federal government. But then you also have the state government. So you have these lots and lots and lots of different layers of jurisdiction, of policies. And like I said, I cannot speak from personal experience in working with this, but simply through research and the writing and the conversations I've done, it is infinitely complex in in, in Oklahoma in particular. And this is because of our unique history in U.S. Indian country. When many people think of you know, native reservations, they will often think of places in Arizona or the Dakotas where oftentimes you have just very, it's very clearly designated on maps. And you generally have more indigenous people living in the reservations and non-indigenous people are generally not living in the reservations. In Oklahoma, because of our history, and it goes back to the, what was called the allotment period of the 1890s, our reservations were forcibly dismantled by the U.S. government. And so our history, our tribal jurisdictions, where populations live, all became much more blended compared with other areas of Indian country where there are just kind of stricter or stronger kind of reservational boundaries. So Oklahoma is a particularly complex place to be able to work in, no matter what you're doing in Indian country, whether you're working with you know, women's or social justice issues or animals, you know, even native economic enterprises like gaming or, you know, meat processing facilities. It's just, it's very complicated. Yeah. I had no idea that it was so different. Yeah. That's interesting. So I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of what your presentation really is going to cover. And as you said, the potential of the tribal-led Eagle Aviary tours, I feel like that potential is is fairly large. Is there anything beyond what you've said now that you would want to share with the listeners here, or do you want to save that for your, for the conference? Um, th- yeah, I, I, I'll save some things for the conference, but I guess the, the fundamental thing that I just want to be able to emphasize is that I, I really commend these, these aviaries for the work that they're doing, the space that they're filling in, wanting to, you know, be, good stewards and keeping the welfare and well-being of eagles first and foremost. But I just think that it's very important to introduce into a lot of the conversations around wildlife and human-animal interactions, just the importance of cultural perspectives, cultural worldviews, because I think that for too long, um, it's been left out here in Oklahoma Indian country, as is the case for so many indigenous peoples across the globe. You know, our cultures have been specifically the target of annihilation and being wiped out. And so much that is part of our culture has been our relationships, our stories, our dreamings with animals that are viewed not just as non-human animals worthy of respect and rights in a Western sense, but as literal kin and relatives with whom we have relationships and obligations. And so I think that 
you know, just for everybody, no matter what your background is, I think it's just a real gift to be able to be in conversation and dialogue and be exposed to other cultural perspectives about non-human animals, because I think that these cultural perspectives absolutely stand alongside science in terms of guiding um, good relationships that humans can have with animal kin going forward. Thank you for that. So if there was a book that you could gift to all of the listeners, what would that book be? Yeah, so thinking about that, because definitely in winding down a PhD, you sometimes feel like you never want to read a book again. And so oftentimes, you know, some of my favorite books are actually cookbooks or, you know, picture books or things. But the the book that I would recommend and that's related to, you know, what we've been talking about today that's done by a fellow tribal member of my tribe is the Cherokee Stories of the Turtle Island Liars Club by Chris Tuton, who's actually a professor of American Indian Studies up at University of Washington. But he's worked with some of our tribal elders and Cherokee storytellers to be able to offer, you know, just just a wonderful array of different traditional Cherokee stories, many of which deal with our traditional relationships with animals and with plants and how this informs what it means to be Cherokee and what it means to be in good relationship with with each other and with the earth. So I definitely recommend Cherokee Stories of Turtle Island, Liars Club. Great. That sounds good. I'm going to put that on the list for sure. (laughs) And actually, I was going to ask you about the conference coming up too. The Emerging Voices for Animals and Tourism Conference is, of course, the one we've been talking about. And when this episode comes out, it may actually be during the conference. So, but because we're recording this ahead of time, what, what talks are you particularly excited about? What what are you excited about for the conference? And were you involved last year at all? No, I was not able to be involved last year, unfortunately, as I was kind of winding down my PhD, but I, I am really, really excited to just be able to have such different um, geographical perspectives. You know, oftentimes with conferences, it really does feel like you can be kind of pigeonholed into certain regions, which is which is great. And, you know, there can be a lot of depth there. But I'm very excited about this conference, particularly because the lineup just, it shows t- to me breadth and depth. We're really inclusive of all kind of non-human animals, but from literally from all corners of the globe. So I'm very, very excited for that. I'm also, you know, as much as <laughs> I know through the COVID period, we've all kind of gotten tired of of Zoom and looking at each other on a screen. I just think that this is really where online platforms, I, I think that this conference is perfectly suited to that. And I'm extremely excited to be able to connect with some of the other people all across the world in, in talking about um you know, our shared passion for kind of where animals and tourism intersect. Aren't online conferences the best though? Like, I think so. I mean, I really do. To the conference and not actually go to a conference. I mean, I love going to conferences. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm weird like that, but like being able to go to an online conference means that you can visit so many more conferences in a year, you know, you can learn so much more and, I and I get to see people that you would never be able to see if you, you know, were attending a conference maybe in Asia, you'd have to fly all the way there. And but now that 
online conferences are a thing and they're an easy thing, you know, we really did get something out of COVID, I guess, that was positive. I agree completely. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely a fan of the online format. Too. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm, I'm always going to want to visit conferences in person too when I can, but, <laughs> but you know, when I can't, it's, it's exactly. just great. So why don't you share one of your stories? What is an early childhood or formative memory you have of your first connection with animals? Yeah, so animals have really been important for for me and my whole family. My dad, from before I was born, he raised quarter horses for racing. And so I remember as a little girl, my dad taking me out onto the land where he had the horses and you know, him just teaching me how to be able to approach them, not just in a way where I wouldn't get kicked or I wouldn't, but in a respectful way where you're, you're talking to them and you're introducing yourself and, you know, you're, um, being aware that they have, they have agency and they have all the needs that we have as well. At the same time, my mom has always been a huge animal fan, but particularly of insects. And so, some of my earliest memories are of her when, you know, we'd go as a family cross-country travel and my mom just had little lizards or praying mantises and she would just make sure that she always had a mason jar with her to be able to try to catch fresh flies because she wanted to make sure that, you know, the the animals, that the, the insects that she was taking care of had the, the fresh food that they would want. Um, so through both of my parents, yeah, just a lot of early memories of the time and care that went into thinking about, you know, feeding animals, making sure that they, they knew that we cared about them and yeah, being in conversation with them. I I will say that for both of my parents, neither one of my parents really got to grow up very strongly connected with their own, with our own cultural heritage. And so for me, it's been, it's been a lifelong journey for me of connecting with my own cultural heritages. And I feel that, that those early relationships with animals certainly were one of the greatest gifts that my parents gave to me is seeing that, that, respect and love that they had for animals. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So Bobby, what's the deal with animals? You know, I don't, I don't know how to answer that other than to say that, you know, they're, they're kin, they're relatives. And I think that the deal is and needs to be really embracing a lot of, you know, the, the, like I kind of said before, a lot of the the cultural knowledge that I think so many human communities have, but maybe has forgotten, has been intentionally or through assimilation or colonization has been overlooked. Because I think that within so much of a lot of human uh, cultural ways, there is the, you know, it goes to the heart of what's the deal with animals and even beyond what's the deal with animals. But animals do so much for us. What do we do for them? And I think that that ultimately is the question that I'm certainly most interested about is like, what, what do we do for them? And I'm just interested in trying to help spotlight some of the awesome people here across Indian country who, from an indigenous perspective, are focused on, um, you know, what, what do we do for animals? What do we owe to animals? And then what does that tell us again about who we are as, as humans? Thank you for taking the time and 
coming on the podcast. I know it's busy and exciting getting ready for the conference and everything. So I appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. That was researcher Bobby Chubigby, up for her PhD at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. For more information about Bobby, you can go to the Deal With Animals website at thedealwithanimals.com and check out the guest profiles. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter while you're there. If you enjoyed this show and have any questions or comments about this episode or about the podcast in general, go to thedealwithanimals.com and leave me a message. This is also a great place to go if you're interested in being a guest or have an idea for a series or episode. And don't forget to follow and review wherever you listen to your podcast as it helps us become more visible to other listeners. I'm your host, Marika Bell. I'd like to thank Kai Stranskoff for the theme music and Natasha Matsark for help with editing. You can see links to guest book recommendations as well as their websites and affiliated organizations in the show notes and at thedealwithanimals.com. Thank you for joining me as we try to answer the question, What's the deal with animals? The deal with animals is now covering conferences and events. What does this mean? It means that if you have an event related to the connection between humans and other animals that you're trying to promote or just want to add value for the people who've already registered as well as your speakers, then the deal with animals will work with you to sponsor episodes and interview your speakers and get the word out for the event. Provide more visibility for your speakers and value for your attendees before and after the event. For more information, reach out to me on Facebook at The Deal With Animals, Twitter at TDWA Podcast, or TheDealWithAnimals.com. And in the meantime, check out the conferences that I've already covered. The Aggression in Dogs Conference, where episodes 34 through 40, and the Emerging Voices for Animals in Tourism Conference, episodes 58 through 64. So what do you think is the deal with animals? The Deal with Animals is part of the IROR Animal Podcast Network.